Jesus is uh, heading for Jerusalem. We've got that, don't we? He's on his way. He's continued to uh, minister the Word of God, healing people, and knowing what he had to do that was before him. All the time that he's ministering, just giving himself, pouring himself out, he knows that he has an accomplishment to make. Still, God's sovereign will, God's purpose for him to go to Jerusalem and to die on the cross for our sins. That's where he is really heading. That's what he's doing. By no means is he going to be scared of the Pharisees and the religious leaders and all the other people who are against him, who have actually put out death threats, had even tried to kill him. There will be more as he keeps bringing truth. And as he brings truth, more and more people in Israel will hate him. Uh, He stands against the grain of the religion of Judaism. That's one of the reasons why they get mad. Matter of fact, they're extremely furious because just as of late, he just confronted them on their eternal damnation the weeping and gnashing of teeth that they will not enter into the kingdom of God. Now, when you say things like that, people are going to get mad. And that's what is happening here. Uh, And he also said this that made him really mad. They always want to kill him. But he says, by the way, you're not going to get in there. But there will be people from the east and the west, the north and the south, the Gentiles, will come into the kingdom and be with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Ooh. <laughs> that is what's going on. That's kind of confrontation that doesn't make Jesus that popular amongst many people. So in a present text, you have the name of Herod coming back up again. He's been here before. We know that name sounds familiar and the last time that we uh, heard of him he had beheaded John the Baptist. So he comes back on the scene or actually his name does. Word has gotten around that he's on the bandwagon of killing Jesus too. At least that's what Pharisees are saying here. Uh, The Herods are known murderers. Go back to Herod the Great. Uh, this guy is no different, comes from that family. So Jesus is on everybody's agenda, seems like, to kill him. At least many of the people. Now it's interesting, he's without sin, he's perfect, loving, kind, gracious, merciful, compassionate. He is one who delivers people from their sin to salvation forgives their sins. Now that is the one that people are hating. Hard to imagine, isn't it? And he offers a gift to be received. It's a gift. They want to kill him. Why would anybody ever want to kill Jesus? Well, his hometown people, we already know, in the beginning of his ministry, wanted to kill him. And He is a sovereign God, Jesus is, and He was able to escape from their midst. Now that's sovereignty. Because He got away from the people somehow. It was not that time that He was to die. It's not going to be in man's timing. Not going to be in man's will and purpose the way it's done. It's always done exactly in God's timing and in God's way. Everything is eventually, isn't it? It's always done in God's way. That's sovereignty. It means He controls all things. Everything. Even the worst things that you can imagine, He's still in control of. That's a big God, isn't it? See, while He is sovereign, it's interesting, man is responsible. He has to account for his actions. And yet God is sovereign. So you have God's sovereignty, but you also have God's mercy, His compassion, 
upon people who are against Him, that even kill Him. So, the great mercy that He has on mankind is incredible, as He is a sovereign God. It's a difficult theme to imagine, but it exists in this great God that we have. Now, when you have God's sovereignty and human responsibility, you get extreme views on that. One of them is called hyper-Calvinism. Now, we're not saying Calvinism. We're called, calling it hyper-Calvinism. Has anybody ever heard of that? Familiar with that? That means that man is not responsible at all. And the hyper-Calvinists deny God's love for sinners. So that's a hyper-Calvinist. We would disagree with that, wouldn't we? On the other hand, you have another extreme called Arminianism, which is the most popular view of our times. It has been basically throughout man's history. Where man is basically sovereign in his own salvation. He chooses when and how he will be saved. They exalt human responsibility and put it first. Remember, we, we already said humans have responsibility and God holds them accountable. But they put this first, the Arminians do, and it's called free will. It's to such an extent that they make God's sovereign will depend on man's choice. If that were to be, we would all be lost because we would continue to hate God and go away from God even further. So, both of those views are extreme. And yet they've been held throughout Christian history for statements that we're going to look at today that should help us get a biblical view and to avoid these extremes. We don't want those extremes but we do want what is balance and what is biblical truth. So in this passage today, which really deals with God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, but God's compassion at the same time. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word, Your truth. May we be able to understand Your nature, Your character, to know You. That's our prayer. That's a prayer today and every day that we would know You better, to know Your character, Your nature, Your person. And by that we give glory to You and we understand further Your purpose in this universe. In Jesus' name, Amen. Alright, let's uh, take a Bible. Let's stand for a moment. So we read this Word and then try to uh, get a little understanding on it. Just uh, 31 through 35. Luke 13. Just at that time, Pharisees approached, saying to him, Go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. He said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day. For it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. And I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You can be seated. No, I'd rather you stand. And I'll be seated. Okay. Oh, just got your attention. All right, ready? Okay. Sorry about that. I don't know if you can get that once you sit down another time, you can't get back up, right? Down for the count. <laughs> down for the, for the count for the next hour, right? Chapter 13. 
last section of chapter 13 is where we're at. God is sovereign over all things. That's basic. That's basic Christianity. That's 101 Christianity, right? That's really should be basic. But there's a hitch. If you ask any Christian if there is God a sovereign and they will tell you, yes. If they say he's not, I would question the fact that they would be a Christian. Because what kind of God would he be if he's not in control, right? But when he's control over everything, that's where people have difficulty. Because bad things happen. They would say, well, if God's in really control, why did he let that happen? Well, my next question is, if he's not in control, that means there are other things that are controlling him. What kind of God is that? That's not God. So, sovereignty of God is simple, tremendously profound. It is an awesome doctrine. It leaves us wondering sometimes, but I will tell you, it is very comforting. So, we've all probably asked ourselves, well, who killed Jesus? It seems so obvious. It's basic. It's easy as it seems. It actually runs to be uh, complex. It's a complexity of this nature, the sovereignty of God, is uh, something that goes way over our heads. But... uh, go through a few of these who uh, had uh, responsibility of killing Jesus. One of them definitely are, uh, would be the Pharisees, right? That's the way this section starts. Just at that time, now mark that, that's pretty key. Just at that time, we'll come back to that in a moment, some Pharisees approached him saying to him, go away, leave here for Herod wants to kill you. Just at that time. Now, uh, as usual, Jesus has these pesky Pharisees hanging around him like those flies and mosquitoes and gnats. First, it may seem that they're really helping Jesus out here. Because they're saying, hey, Herod, this is his area. Word is out that he is going to kill you. Just like you better get on out of here because he's going to kill you. Remember John the Baptist, right? Well, it seems like they're really trying to help him out, but uh, and there's probably some legitimacy to this uh, in the sense that he had killed Herod had killed. John the Baptist had him beheaded. And there are some thoughts in Herod's mind that maybe this is John the Baptist reincarnated. You know, the spirit of John the Baptist is back. He's saying the same thing that John the Baptist did. I'm in trouble. If I let him continue on, he may take my position. And I've heard that he claims to be king. So maybe there is a lot of truth to this that he would like to kill Jesus. So the Pharisees are really having a nice moment with Jesus, right? Being really kind to him. No, (laughs) not at all. Uh, You see, they're not being polite here. If you back up a few verses... um, You'll see why. This is where we had left off in our Luke study. Uh, as he's talking to the same people, basically, he says in 27, And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. But yourselves being thrown out. And they will come from east and west and north and south will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who will be first 
last, who are last, will be first. Some are first who will be last. The Jews should have been first. But most of them are going to be in last place. They're not going to make it. They don't win. So the ones who were first are last. The ones who are last, like Gentiles, outside the kingdom of God, will be first in the kingdom of God. Weeping, gnashing of teeth. Depart from me, you evildoers. I don't know you. And then we get verse 31. Just at that time. Now do you catch why that would say just at that time? It's pretty easy, isn't it? Some Pharisees approached. They're ready to kill him, but they're they're threatening. Here's really what they're doing. You better get out of here. Herod's going to kill you. Can you see why they would say that? I think they're trying to be intimidating. They want him to get out of there. Matter of fact, keep on heading to Jerusalem because that's where they're going to get him. That is the plan. When he gets to Jerusalem, that's exactly where he's heading. That's where he wants to go. So we'll get a little bit more information on that when we get to that name of that city, Jerusalem. Uh, Pharisees would have been scared of Herod. They might have uh, heard something about uh, Herod's own scheming. They'd like to get Jesus out of there, right? So there's the Pharisees. Okay, did they have a responsibility of killing Jesus? Yes, they did. Who else wants to kill Jesus? Well, Herod wants to kill Jesus. He uh, is the one who uh, shortly will play a, a role in the trials of Jesus. There's a trial before this particular Herod that will be in Jerusalem. Herod the Great was the Herod who ruled back in Idumea at the time of the birth of Jesus. You remember Herod the Great? When Herod the Great died, he had four sons and he divided the kingdom up that he had amongst the four sons. Here is one here. This Herod is despised by the Jews just like all the other Herods, Herod the Great. Uh, He would be around the Perea, Galilee area. Perea is just on the other side of the Jordan River. So it's east of Galilee. And then he has the Galilee area. That's where Jesus is at right now in this story. Moving towards Jerusalem. That's where he's at, probably in Perea. Herod is a uh, puppet ruler. He's really not ruling on his own. Jews hate him because he's over them. He's not really Jewish, but he's considered a Jewish king in a way. Mixture, you know, but he's not really Jewish like they are. They, They hate that. They hate Roman rule. They hate any puppet rulers. They despise him. But here they use Herod as one who seems to be on their side. Strange bedfellows there. It's almost like you know they you know they're scared of him, but yet hey if he kill if he wants to kill him it's probably okay, but we want to do it. <laughs> Maybe with his his help a little bit. Anyway, look at Luke twenty three, just ten chapters later, verse eight. This is at the trial. Pilate has had Jesus before him. Remember that trial. That's the Roman ruler in Jerusalem. Caesarea area. And he came down at that time to Passover. Now we get to Herod. You say, what does he have to do with this? Well, he happens to be in town. This is the Passover. This is a a big deal. People come from all over. Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus. He's been wanting to see Him for quite some time. He's heard a lot about Him. For he had wanted to see him for a long time because... Why? Does he want to be saved? Because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see 
to see some sign performed by Him. That's what people want. They want to see and experience miraculous things. He doesn't want Christ, but He wants to see something. So there He is. There's Jesus. And He questioned Him at some length. Did you catch that? Gave Him a lot of questions. Who knows how long this was? But He, Jesus, answered Him nothing. Never had a word for Herod. Doesn't owe him a thing. Matter of fact, he despises Herod. And we'll see in our text today, we can back that up, why he despises him. The chief priests, the scribes were standing there accusing him vehemently, all the leaders, and Herod with his soldiers after threatening him with contempt and mocking him dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. This is the trial that where Jesus was before Herod. This is the Herod that's in our text today. Do do you get it now? And everybody knows about the the robe. Remember what they did there? You know, you always a king, put a robe on him. They're making fun of him, mocking him. Verse 12, Now Herod and Pilate became friends. Now why would that be? There is the Roman ruler and there's Herod. He's kind of a you know puppet ruler around there. They get to come together and they become friends with one another that very day before they had been enemies with each other. Ah, something in common there. Pride. At the same time, you know, they're uh, questioning Jesus. So, there again would be strange bedfellows who have something in common. They don't believe in Jesus. Happens so frequently. Bad company. With bad company. Makes more corruption. That's my little proverb. Bad company corrupts good morals, right? If believers are around bad, uh, unbelieving type thoughts, what, what will come out of that, right? But there's two that are unbelievers and they're mounting together. You ever seen two people who probably would be against each other and all of a sudden they have something in common, like a, a, some kind of drugs? And all of a sudden they become really good friends. And they are further from uh, you know any kind of common bonds. You've probably seen that before. Have something to unite them. So, um, this is the idea of Herod. So you have Pharisees who are Jews. Did the Jews kill Jesus? Yes. Did Herod have anything to do with killing Jesus? Yeah, he did. You know, it's one of the little trials there. Not that he could have changed things, but, uh, you know, he mocked him and, and so on and so forth. Uh, if you answered the Gentiles, would you be correct? Yes, the Gentiles killed him. That'd be correct. Uh, they're pagans, and of course they don't believe in the one true God, do they? Did the Romans kill Jesus? Yeah, they were the executioners. They're the ones that did the cross uh, there, and, and uh, as he hung there, they hung him up. So they had everything to do. So you have the Jews and Gentiles and Herod and and Romans and me. You. Sinners killed Jesus. Who He saved. He saved sinners, didn't He? In His plan. We kill God because our sins sent Him to the cross. So, there's one other one. And it is the one that is the chief answer to all of this. Who killed Jesus? Well, we've seen those other ones and it's correct. But let's get to the ultimate answer. God killed Jesus. That is a mind-boggler. Why would God kill... God the Father kill His Son? Why would He do that? Well, if He didn't do it, then how would we ever be saved? This is all in His plan. 
This is all in His sovereign will and His purpose. See, see where the sovereignty comes in here. Look in Isaiah 53, verse 10. One of the greatest chapters. It's a diamond that's just glimmering in the sun. 53.10 But the Lord, Yahweh, was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. He would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. That is dealing with the death and the resurrection of Christ. He will see his offspring. Christ will see his offspring. That means he will be killed. It was the Father's will. He was pleased to crush his son. That's staggering, isn't it? That's how much he loved you. That he would kill his son. He is the one who killed Jesus. But yet, man killed Jesus. We killed Jesus. The Jews killed Jesus. The Romans, the Gentiles, they all killed Jesus. But it's all in God's plan. Now that's staggering in the mind, isn't it? So why, this doesn't make sense. Yeah, on our little puny minds, it doesn't. But in God's plan, you have to believe it, don't you? And then just leave it with that. Well, they say that Herod wants to kill him. And he said to them, and here's where we get Jesus' response, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons, perform cures today and tomorrow. Third day I reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. What do you mean, Jesus? What do you mean? Jesus in no way is intimidated by Pharisees or Herod. Herod coming to kill him. He's not intimidated at all. Matter of fact, bring him on. (laughs) It's God's plan and timing that Jesus be killed in Jerusalem. He's not there. Jesus knows that. He trusts in that. That's the plan. That's the purpose. There is no reason to be worried by that kind of threat coming from man. And you know what? How does that apply to us? If we have Christ in our hearts, do we have any reason to be afraid of anybody or any system? Uh-uh. We don't. Because we have Christ. Greater is He who lives in you than he who is in the world. What's the worst thing that can happen to us? Go to be with God. So, why do we worry? That's a good question, isn't it? That's for another day. So, his answer here is that he's not scared. And he says, okay, he's coming. You go and tell that fox. Now, that's an interesting kind of wording that Jesus would use. Go and tell that fox. What did that mean back then? Go and tell that fox. The foxes were known for destructiveness. And there's an Old Testament passage that talks about the little foxes that spoil the vines. You've heard of that, right? Well, foxes are cunning, right? Sly as a fox, right? They're sneaky, they're wily, uh, they're fast, they're quick, they're destructive. But I will tell you, that's probably not the main idea. That's part of it, but that's really not the main idea. What do you think the main idea is? Well, to them back then, foxes were just insignificant. They were really insignificant. They were kind of a nuisance. Really weren't good for anybody or anything. You've seen animals or insects or whatever that seem to be like a nuisance. He says, listen, you tell that extremely third-rate nuisance that he's not going to kill me. He didn't have a chance to kill me. So to call somebody a fox would be very demeaning. Jesus is demeaning this ruler, Herod. It's contemptuous. That's the way 
that it's meant to be like a fox. It's not like, man, he is really sly and intelligent and smart. He's not giving him any kind of positive note here. It's very uh, very contentious to me. So now we get into the fact that Jesus is sovereign here. He says, you go ahead and tell him this. Okay? I cast out demons. I perform cures. I do it today, tomorrow, and then the third day comes and then I accomplish everything. Now, is he saying in three days he's going to do this? No, he's not even in Jerusalem yet. That's several days that he will be there. But what he's saying is something that is pretty simple. He's saying, hey, and this was a euphemism that they use today, tomorrow. Then I will complete what I need to do. He's just saying, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. I'm going to do the very plan that I have in mind. It'll be this day, this day, and so on and so forth until the time that it comes to its completion. That's sovereignty of God there, and no man is going to thwart the purpose that is happening here. That's the idea of what he's saying. So, Scripture clearly states that God predestines us. Look in Ephesians 1.11. Ephesians 1.11 We have obtained an inheritance having been predestined, predetermined according to His purpose who works all things after the counsel of His will. The counsel. There was a pre-history meeting between God, if we may, if we can put it in a humanistic way, or a human way, where the triune God got together in their council and said, this is our will. This is our purpose. This is what we're going to do. Long before man was ever even here. Long before there was any creation. And this was God's great grand design. We weren't even here. But you know what? In His eternal plan was you. And how He would bring you into the kingdom knowing that you are a sinner and you don't deserve it. Here's how He's going to do it. This is what He's going to do. So He works all things in your life after the counsel of His will. He never makes you sin. You're responsible for your sin, but even in that, He will work out for His good if you are His. Uh, according to His purpose, right? This means that nothing happens by chance. Does that give you comfort? There is nothing in this world that is meaningless. I mean, to, to atheists, there is no meaning. How we got here who we really are and where we're going. There is really nothing. It's just random. Everything that happens is just flying around and it's random. It's like being on I-70. You know? <laughs> cars passing in. It, it, you know, it's a mixed up crazy world. And if I was an atheist, I don't even know why I'd even want to live. And that's why they have no value over life when we talk about, uh, you know, the... The, the plan that they came up with what was that in 1973 right about abortion you know that kind of thing and uh, they have no uh, value of life when we hear of just multiple murders I understand in St. Louis five people got killed last night I don't know what happened to Columbia there's probably some kind of shooting going on there some kind of shooting here. I mean, life really doesn't mean anything to anybody anymore, really. And that's what they've taught in our public schools, you know. And they they tell them that it's okay to commit suicide if that's what you think is right for your life. And then they wonder why these kids kill themselves. Just go on and on, right? Anyway, I will tell you, even with that, God is still sovereign in that. Augustine put it this way: the will of God is the necessity of all things. Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest thinkers that this nation has ever known back in the 1700s, 
just a little bit before what we just celebrated, Independence Day. You know, this was like a couple of decades or so before when he said this, but that was during that time. And he lived here in America. said, uh, For all must own that God sometimes wills not to hinder the breach of His own commands, because He does not in fact hinder it. He wills to permit sin. It is evident because He does permit it. None will say that God Himself does what He does not will to do. This is hard thinking, isn't it? Jonathan Edwards, you have to kind of read him over and over. So what did he just say? If you argue that God only permits sin, but that He does not decree it, Edward answered that if God permits it, it cannot be contrary to His will. For if it were contrary to His will as He permits it, then it would be contrary to His will to permit it. For that's the same thing. But nobody will say that God permits sin when it's against His will to permit it. For this would be to make Him act involuntarily or against His will. What it comes down to, we're stuck if we're saying that He doesn't permit sin or He lets things go against His will when Jesus was speaking in John 10 where He said He was the Good Shepherd, you know, that kind of thought. There are people that wanted to kill Him John 10, verse 17 and 18. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Did you catch that? Nobody's going to kill me. It's me who is in control of that. They're not going to do it in their timing. They're not going to do it in their purpose. But it's going to come out, even though they're held responsible, I'm still going to do it in my authority. Wow, that's sovereign, isn't it? To have control over your death, and then of course He has the authority to raise it back up again. Only God can do that. Look in Psalm 103.19. Really see the nature of God here. 103 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. Over all. Psalm 115, verse 3. Staggering right here. But our God is in the heavens, he does whatever he pleases but it never goes against His nature when He does something. That means it is always going to work together for good. Edwards also argues that the crucifixion of Christ was the greatest of all decreed events. Being the main thing in God's work, namely the work of redemption. Let's go to Acts 2.23 and it says it all right there. You've got to love this passage because here you see the sovereignty of God and the depravity of man and His responsibility. Verse 23, This man, Peter speaking of Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan foreknowledge also of God, predetermined and foreknowledge of God. God did that. He was delivered over. Jesus was. Because that was a plan of God. But then he says, and, and, and so th- there is a sovereignty of God, right? All in that. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put Him to death. 
Jews, the Romans, they're all guilty, aren't they? We are. But it was God's plan. God is sovereign. But what about those people who did that? Mm. What about Judas? Mm. Verse 24, But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And then David is quoted by his writings by Peter here from the Old Testament about the resurrection of Christ. It was promised in the Old Testament. Death, burial, resurrection, the suffering, all of that. It's promised in the Old Testament. So God did it. Evil men did it. God's plan, but yet God does not sin. He does not do things that would be against His will. That means that was His will that His Son die. We know why. But anybody who does that is held responsible. And if they don't repent, they will be held in high punishment. Deep. Let's think about this. Um, even over evil. The deeds of Satan, for instance. God remains pure. God remains untainted by evil, doesn't He? At the same time, Satan had to have permission to afflict Job. And God gave that opportunity for him to do that. He said, what kind of God is that? He's a sovereign, great God. And by the end of the the story of Job, right at the last couple chapters, you see exactly why God did that. It's the nature and character of God. And Job saw God in a way that he had never seen Him before. And he was a righteous man. But God had a lot of reasons why He did that to Job. Now, there's another thing. Another occasion. God willed to kill wicked King Ahab. Ahab and Jezebel. Remember those two? A demon offers his services to go and be a lying spirit among Ahab's prophets so that the king would be lured to a battle where he's going to be killed. God has a destiny for Ahab to be killed, to be killed in battle. And He used a demon to do that. Can He do that? God is sovereign. Did He make anybody sin? No. Never. Look in 1 Kings 22, verse 20. Rather incredible. Makes your mind just kind of... Your brain just kind of fuses out there for a moment when you, when you think about this. But 1 Kings 22, verse 20. 1 Kings 22, verse 20. Right at the end of 1 Kings. The Lord said, Who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said this, while another said that. I think uh, this is the host of heaven. These are demons and such. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. This is a demon. I will entice him. The Lord said to him, How? Now, do you think God doesn't know? And He said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all His prophets. Then He said, you are to entice Him and also prevail. Go and do so. This is God. Now, there be, uh, for behold, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all these, your prophets, and the Lord has proclaimed disaster against you. That's what he uses to bring Ahab down. He uses a demon to do that. You'd think he wouldn't have any contact with demons. Yeah, he wouldn't think he'd have any contact with the devil, but you know what? He uses the devil and all his host to bring about his purpose. That's an incredible God. And he's in control of it all. And God is never doing any sin. But yet the demons are doing their best that they can right now to try to destroy everybody here. Tries to destroy the church. It's never going to win. The gates of Hades 
A lying spirit, huh? The point is, neither the evil of Satan nor the rebellion of sinners in any way will threaten or thwart God's sovereign plan. So, we get back to Luke, our text. says, Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day. I'm just going to keep doing it. For it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. Jesus isn't always going to go to Jerusalem and He knows that's where He's going to die. He says, Prophets are killed in Jerusalem. I will not perish outside of Jerusalem. He's just telling right here, Hey, it's not going to happen, folks. It's not going to happen here. Prophets are not killed outside of Jerusalem. That's where I'm going to go and that's where you're going to kill me basically is what it's about. This would be the city that Jesus is crucified in, right? And Jerusalem has a history of killing the prophets. Look in 2 Chronicles chapter 24. 2 Chronicles 24. Kings and then Chronicles, right? 24, verse 20 and 21. The Spirit of God came on Zechariah. This is not Zechariah in the um, the, the prophet section. That's Zechariah. It's another Zechariah. The son of Jehoiada the priest. And he stood above the people and said to them, Thus God has said, Why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord and do not prosper? Uh, people don't like news coming from God with that's bad because you have forsaken the Lord. He has also forsaken you. Uh-oh. What happens when you speak truth? What happens when you speak truth to liberals today? Liberals, unbelievers, yeah, basically the same thing. So they conspired against him and at the command of the king they stoned him to death in the court of the house of the Lord. The court, the, the temple, they killed a prophet of God. They killed him right there. You know what? Kind of happens today, doesn't it? Thus Joash the king did not remember the kindness which has Father Jehoiada had shown him, but he murdered his son. And as he died, he said, May the Lord see and avenge. So, there is... A, an example of a prophet killed in Jerusalem. It happened all the time. Look at Jeremiah chapter 26, verse 20. Indeed, there was also a man who prophesied in the name of the Lord, Uriah the son of Shemaiah from Kiriath-Jerim, and he prophesied against this city, Jerusalem. Israel, and against the land of words similar to all those of Jeremiah. When the king Jehoiakim and all his mighty men and all the officials heard his words, then the king sought to put him to death. But Uriah heard it and he was afraid and fled and went to Egypt. You know what they did? They go after him. The king Jehoiakim sent men to Egypt Elnathan, the son of Abkor, and certain men with him went into Egypt. And they brought Uriah from Egypt and led him to King Jehoiakim, who slew him with a sword and cast his dead body into the burial place of the common people. They brought him to the king. Where's the king at? The king's in Jerusalem. To kill him. Wow. Okay. So, what do we, what do we have here? Prophets are have perished at Jerusalem. Why wouldn't Jesus be crucified in Jerusalem? That's the plan. So we go to number two. God is sovereign, but with mercy and compassion. And now we'll probably move a little bit quicker as we go through our Luke text. Are we set up for all this now? Is that out? Okay, we're following, right? Okay. Scripture teaches that even though God is sovereign, He has compassion towards all people. 
And he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. But you wouldn't have it. There's Jesus saying that when he approached Jerusalem, instead of being glad in celebration, he actually saw the city and he, he wept, didn't he? He cried, he wept. It's a strong word. He sobbed as he knew that the city would be judged. Look at Ezekiel 33.11. To get the nature and character of God throughout 33.11 Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? Do you see the compassion of God? Please turn back but yet He's sovereign. The plan has been made, but yet He's crying out to them. How can our little minds understand that? Well, we believe it, but it's hard to comprehend, isn't it? It'll take an eternity to know the, all the character of God, but that's tremendous that He would be that compassionate. How about Luke 6.35? But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great. You'll be sons of the Most High for He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just your Father's mercy. He's kind to who? Ungrateful, evil men. John 3.16 For God so loved the world. He gave His only begotten Son. We know that Romans 9. What about Israel? Paul says, I would go to hell in a sense. That I'd be damned that they would be saved. That couldn't happen. But that's how he felt towards the nation and the people. So Christ says in Luke 13, I would, but they would not. Is that sad? He was weeping. He was sobbing. So in our text, Jesus had a heart of compassion for the disobedient nation of Israel. They had disobediently killed the prophets of old. And Jesus is doing the same thing and as He gets ready to go into the city on Palm Sunday where they're waving the palms and everything, He knows that judgment is going to be made on the nation. Ah, I wanted to gather the children, children of Israel together. Look in Luke 19, just a few chapters on, verse 41 and 42. Jesus answered, I tell you if... Oh, you know what they're saying? Verse 39, Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. You know what they're saying? Well, back up. They're saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. What's going on there? That's riding on the donkey. They're praising Him and everything. And the Pharisees said, You need to tell your people to shut up. And what does Jesus say? I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Does that make sense? See what's happening there? Number three, God is sovereign. Man is responsible. God has the plan. Man is responsible for his own actions. Luke 22, 22. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Woe. Damnation is pronounced to this man. Who's the man? It's Judas. Judas was predetermined to do what he did. 
But yet Judas is the one who did the actions. You say, well, how can that be against... you know? Well, Romans 11 gives our answer on that. God will harden whom He hardens and He'll be merciful to whom He wants to give mercy to. He said, that's not fair. Oh, in Romans 11, what does it say? Shut up, oh man. He can do what He wants. That really makes us desire to give our love that He's given to us back to Him and praise Him, doesn't it? Because every man, woman, and child deserves to go to hell. And we should have. If we just had justice, but grace is there. They would not have it it was sovereignly ordained. They were responsible for the wicked rebellion. This means that no sinner can ever blame God when he comes under God's judgment and say, "God, you're the one. You're the you know you're the one who didn't choose to save me." You know, people talk about election. Say, "Well, what about you know you know what about that? You know, God didn't do it. So what can I do?" I didn't repent because you didn't elect me to salvation. Oh, you were called, weren't you, sinner? He can always say, I didn't repent because of the hardness of my sinful heart and because I rejected your many, many merciful warnings. John 1.12 He came to His own and His own received Him not. They did it. Number four, last one, verse 35. God's sovereignty will judge rebellion. Luke, uh, Luke 13, right at the last verse now. So after he cries out to them, he talks about the hen gathering the brood under her wings, and they wouldn't do it. He says, Behold, your house is left to you desolate. Seventy A.D. Roman general Titus came in, destroyed, leveled the city, stones of the temple brought down, stone upon another stone. Jesus already told them about that, hadn't it? It was a awful thing. Nation was dispersed until 1948. Not that long ago. But God abandons a nation or an individual. That nation or person is left desolate. For close to 2,000 years, they were scattered over the world. Israel was. To be without God is truly to be without hope in this world. In Luke 19, 43-44, Jesus says, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. They were visited by God. They didn't recognize it. And He said finally, that's it. Turning to the Gentiles. I'll leave you desolate. Now, that's the judgment on the leaders. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe to you who have seen the Messiah and have rejected him. We'll see those woes, you know, like in Matthew 23, it's like in Luke 21. There's one other thing, though. Right at the end of 13. And you can say, that's it for that nation. That's it for those people. They're done. God will never save any of them again. But you you will not see Me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, there is a time when that happened as He went into the city. 
but also it's the day of salvation for individuals. Salvation for a nation, a people who are chosen in that group of people. Look at Psalm 118.26. There is hope. There is hope that Jesus puts forth here. Psalm 118.26 Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Look in Zechariah 12.10 This is a promise. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a first firstborn. And that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Adrimon in the plain of Megiddo. We can read on there. Romans 11 talks about the time when the calling of God, the gifts are irrevocable. Irrevocable. There are people who He will save even in that nation. They still have hope. There are Christian Jews even as history has gone through a real small remnant. A remnant today. And He will come back and they will look upon Him and there will be them who will be there calling upon the name of the Lord. Do you see, even amidst of bad news and all the sin and everything, always hope. The light is always there. Isn't that great? The warning is this, and the promise is this there in verse 35, not only for the nation of Israel, but it applies to every individual down through history. If you continue in rebellion against God, and you reject the Savior that He sends, weeping and gnashing of teeth for all eternity. But if you will repent of your sins and trust in the Savior who willingly went to the cross in obedience to the Father to save His people from their sins, if you're one of them, you will know the joy of the Lord and you will be saying, Blessed is the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name. <laughs> Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's, it's talking about praising God. Only believers truly praise God. You are reconciled to God. That be the case for time and eternity. You will reign with Jesus when He comes in His glory with His holy angels. Now have you seen the absolute sovereignty of God and yet the responsibility of man? Do you see the compassion of Jesus, even with all that, it should stagger you because your mind is just turning, trying to just get a hold of that. That's a great God. His, his mind are much higher than ours, but He gives the truth here. The truth that it's only Him that saves. It's all by His grace. He ordains who are going to be the saved. And yet at the same time, He holds responsible the ones who are not saved. And that's why in Romans 11, and we'll close with this. Thank you for being real patient. But this is really the news of salvation, isn't it? Right at the end of Romans 11, after he has given so many deep truths about God showing mercy. By the way, you know, he says in verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. He's talking about the... the nation of Israel in Romans 11 there. For just as you were once disobedient to God, but now you have been shown mercy, you Gentiles who became Christians, because of their disobedience, who's there, the nation of Israel, because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, who were once disobedient, became obedient, what about them? They also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience that He may show mercy to all. 
His mercy is found in Romans 9. He shows mercy on whom He wants to show mercy. And He shows His wrath on others. Our vessels of wrath, those vessels of mercy. And then you go, I don't get it, I believe it. I believe it. So here's verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became His counselor? Who can question Him or tell Him? Or who is first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him again? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Can you guys say that? To Him be the glory forever. Amen. That's our prayer. Amen. Thank you guys for staying with me on that because I think it's rather incredible, deep doctrine.